Hi, my name is Pete Redden, and welcome to The Way I Taught It, Next Level Aviation Knowledge in Microbursts. This episode is brought to you by Vapor Global Aviation, creating tomorrow's pilots today. Look them up on Facebook and LinkedIn, Vapor Global Aviation. All right, so let's get right to it. I thought I'd take a different tack today. Instead of having a uh, prepared script to read, we just kind of go off the cuff with my notes and discuss thunderstorms and microbursts per the ACS requirements for private, instrument, and commercial. So let's talk about thunderstorms right off the bat. We all know what they are. We all have encountered them at some point in our life on the ground and hopefully will not encounter them in a negative way in flight. So thunderstorms can be categorized into two real columns. One, severe thunderstorms with tops uh, over 35,000 feet. You're going to want to avoid all thunderstorms by 20 nautical miles, especially these. There are those thunderstorms that are less than 35,000 feet, which are not categorized as severe. But for general aviation aircraft, any thunderstorm is certainly a threat uh, to safety. In the Air Force, we used to look at this as uh, a thunderstorm as something we this kind of thunderstorm that's not a severe thunderstorm avoid it by 10 nautical miles there are three stages to a thunderstorm the cumulus stage the mature stage and the dissipating stage the cumulus stage is all about the updrafts it's about the forming of the thunderstorm the mature stage we have lightning rain heavy rain hail turbulence downdrafts updrafts so this is where everything has kind of come together and the pot is really boiling uh, inside the mature stage of the thunderstorm. And then we have the dissipating stage where it's all downdrafts now. A lot of rain is falling out the bottom of the cumulonimbus cloud. This is where some dangers in the mature and the dissipating stage, this is where some real dangers of wind shear, specifically microbursts, can occur. So we need three things to have a thunderstorm. We have to have an unstable atmosphere. We have to have warm, moist air, so moisture-laden air. And we have to have a lifting force. That lifting force can be any kind of lifting force, whether it's a mechanical lifting force, such as mountains, or you can have an environmental lifting force, such as maybe a very warm body of water creating an updraft uh, due to heating, unequal heating of the Earth's surface. So it can be uh, both physical and environmental. Thunderstorms are usually one to five miles wide. So you want to think about that uh, when you start talking about avoiding thunderstorms by 20 nautical miles, or if you consider anything less than that. If, it's, if the thunderstorm is five miles wide and you're avoiding it by 20 miles, well, you really only have about a 15-mile buffer between you and that thunderstorm. And really, at any time that the thunderstorms are being developed and there's less than 40 miles between thunderstorm cells, you really have to consider the intensity of the thunderstorm before you kind of go blasting between them because remember you want to avoid both thunderstorms by 20 miles so anytime thunderstorms are closer than 20 mi or 40 miles together you're going to impede on that 20 miles of avoidance distance so let's talk about wind shear so we have basic wind shear which is uh, any sudden change in direction or wind speed and we're all familiar with that there's also a definition for severe wind shear which is the same as above, but it adds some very specific numbers to it. So any change in wind speed or direction that equates to greater than 15 knots 
or 500 feet vertical velocity or VSI, vertical speed, changes. So that's pretty significant when we start talking about a general aviation aircraft. Those definitions come from an advisory circular that is used by uh, jet aircraft pilots to avoid thunderstorms and microbursts. And so we can kind of work that within our risk management, if you will. So wind shear can occur anytime during or after the mature stage of a thunderstorm begins, because once the, the mature stage begins, we start getting gust fronts, we start getting the up and down drafts, which start leading into microbursts. So there's a lot of energy in the atmosphere that is now looking to be dissipated and equalized. So let's talk about, you know, what is a microburst? You know, a microburst is a severe downdraft of up to 6,000 feet per minute. It can be 3,000 feet wide initially, and then it spreads out to 6,000 to 12,000 feet wide at the surface horizontally. And the vortices that microbursts can generate can be up to 2,000 feet wide. They occur around thunderstorms, rain showers, and verga. Basically, any time that cold air is plunging towards the ground from approximately an altitude of 15,000 feet or above. The lasting effects can be up to 15 to 20 minutes. So microbursts are pretty intense. They fall under wind shear, and they're probably the most dangerous kind of wind shear that we can encounter as pilots of general aviation aircraft. So let's talk about the cross-section of a microburst and how it can affect an aircraft, whether that aircraft is on approach or whether that aircraft is on landing. If the microburst is occurring in front of you, what's going to happen is that downdraft is going to hit the ground and spread out horizontally. As it spreads out horizontally, you could have gusts and winds up to 45 miles an hour. So if you're on final approach and you're Piper Archer and you're flying along at uh, 66 knots on final approach and you get hit with that 45 knots of headwind well your ground speed is going to decrease significantly to about 20 knots over the ground you're going to feel like you're ho hovering and you're going to have a performance increasing shear where the airplane is going to want to climb based on this all of a sudden headwind so as the airplane begins to climb you as the pilot if you're unknowing about the microburst in the area you're gonna bring the power back to idle and you're gonna pitch the nose down, especially on landing, to get back to the runway. You may even do that on takeoff without the power reduction. So now you're, you're decreasing your angle of attack, you're decreasing your pitch, and you're trying to control this all of a sudden ballooning action. Well, then we transition further into the microburst, kind of into the middle of the microburst, where those significant downdrafts are pushing straight down towards the ground and now you have either both your power back and your pitch down, or maybe just your pitch down because uh, you're on takeoff, and you've reduced your angle of attack, and now all of a sudden you're getting pushed into the ground. So now what you're trying to do is play catch up because now you're trying to reverse your pitch and try and climb, and if your power has been pulled back significantly on final approach, you're going to jam that power in and try and climb away from the ground now that you're getting pushed into it and it's at this point we reach the final third of the microburst which is now a 45 up to a 45 knot tailwind and you're trying to fly your 66 or 78 knots approximately i'm using a, a piper archer as a reference uh, away from the from the runway and now you have this 45 knot tailwind so your ground speed increases but your indicated airspeed 
kind of falls out and now you're on the verge of a stall or stalling and this can lead to controlled flight into terrain. So now that we can kind of see why a microburst, the cross section is so dangerous, you know, bottom line, avoid, avoid, avoid. Uh, that's right out of uh, the advisory circular about uh, wind shear from the FAA. Anytime that we can identify that significant wind shear is in the area, we should avoid takeoffs and landings altogether. Now, how do we identify whether wind shear is in the area? Well, obviously, pilot reports will have you know, obvious signs of wind shear. Uh, the tower may tell you that there's wind shear in the area. We have low-level wind shear warning systems. So we have a lot of things that can work in our favor, but not a lot of that is at uncontrolled airports where we may be flying on across country or coming back from a family trip. So we need to be able to identify signs of wind shear or signs of microburst. So signs of a microburst, if at any time within three nautical miles of the runway that you are intending to land on, you have any of these signs, you have the potential for microburst. If there's a rain shaft, if there's a dissipating thunderstorm or a dissipating rain shower or a thunderstorm that's in the area that's reached that mature stage, if there is any kind of a rain shaft that's falling out of a cloud and actually hitting the ground, that's a sign of a microburst because you have descending cold air. If you have any kind of blowing or curling or rings of dust within that three nautical miles, specifically around the runway or the airport environment, i.e. inside the fence line, you have signs of a microburst. If you have wind gusts in excess of 15 knots or more. So if your winds are five gusting to 20, you have a 15 knot gust, you need to start thinking about, okay, are any of these other signs within three nautical miles of the airport? Because if they are, I'm probably looking at a microburst situation. If you haven't started your descent yet, you know, just avoid, take time to delay or divert somewhere else away from that runway, away from that airport that are showing those signs of microburst. Um, it could be the, as easy as you know just flying maybe 10 miles away, orbiting for 15 or 20 minutes, and then coming back and seeing you know if the effects are still there or not. So avoid, delay, divert until safe. Well, let's say we go away, and we, we kind of fly 10 miles away, and we, we just wait 10 or 15 minutes, and then we come back um, to the airport and we don't see any of those signs of microburst anymore. Well, what we want to do then is we want to fly a stabilized approach. And for general aviation aircraft, I use 321. At 300 feet above the ground, I want to be within 200 feet of my calculated VSI speed, my vertical speed that I have for a three degree glide slope. I want to be within 10 knots, that's the one, so 321, 10 knots of my indicated airspeed that I have chosen to fly, and that indicated airspeed includes adding one half of that gust factor. So if that gust factor is still at 15 knots, we're gonna add seven and a half knots to our final approach airspeed, so bump it up to eight. If I'm flying ILS, I wanna maintain within one dot of my glide path. If I have a PAPI, I wanna make sure that I have two red, two white, and I don't wanna deviate by more than one red or white light on that so no more than three white or three red at any time you know if i have a vasi i definitely don't want to see any red uh, along final approach i definitely don't want to have any kind of severe pitching going on as i'm flying the approach that's another indication of pending wind shear 
And you want to make sure that your throttle position is kind of normal. You don't want it to have you don't want to have any excess throttle than you normally would on any other approach. And here I'm just going to stop real quick. The first sign that you're going to have as a pilot that you have encountered wind shear is your airspeed indicator. Your airspeed indicator is going to be the first thing that says, hey, you are actually in wind shear. If your airspeed indicator starts fluctuating all over the place, plus or minus 10 knots, or it makes you in any way, shape, or form uneasy, you have probably entered wind shear. And just go ahead and execute the go around. Get the power max, get the nose up towards the horizon, get flying away from the ground, bring those flaps up. If the thunderstorm or Virga dissipating clouds you know, from a thunderstorm are in front of you, you know, alter your course just enough to avoid flying directly into that. Again, uh, delay or divert until safe. A microburst can last up to 15 to 20 minutes, the effect. So that microburst comes down, it rolls out along the ground, and then it generates vortices. And those vortices can last up to 15 or 20 minutes. So if you're going to delay your approach because you have the signs of microburst or you have the signs of wind shear, you're going to have to delay for at least 15 to 20 minutes. So now what does a scenario look like that you may see uh, from your flight instructor or from an evaluator? So you may see uh, as part of your pre-flight planning requirements that, hey, within three nautical miles of your airfield, you have a dissipating thunderstorm. And so that should kind of cue you up to be expecting the potential for microbursts. It doesn't mean that there's microbursts yet. It just means that there's the potential for microbursts. So now as the scenario develops, you may be given clues that we've discussed. Hey, as you're, you know, turning final approach, you're on a two mile final, you're at, you know, six, 700 feet AGL. You notice, you know, about a mile off the end of the departure end that there is a dissipating thunderstorm that there is a rain shaft coming out of it and you start seeing you know dust kicking up around the departure end of the runway while you're approaching the runway from the opposite side so at that point you know that's something that you can start discussing okay here's what i would expect i believe i'm there's a microburst in the area here are the signs of a microburst here's what a microburst can do here's what it looks like and then you can rationalize through your risk management that, hey, you know what? I'm gonna avoid delay or divert until it's safe and make that decision, execute that go around, get away from the area and just demonstrate to your instructor and or the evaluator that I understand what a microburst is. I understand what a thunderstorm is. I understand the risks that are involved and I'm not going to land at an airport if I have a thunderstorm or a dissipating thunderstorm demonstrating the signs of windshear or microburst within three nautical miles. So once again, um, I hope these podcasts are helping you. I hope that you're, you're, you're getting things out of them. Uh, you can always contact me at peter.redden.dpe at gmail.com. That's P-E-T-E-R dot R-E-D-D-A-N dot D-P-E at gmail.com. If you have any inputs of how I can make this better, if you have any topics that you want to hear about sooner rather than later, please email me or uh, leave me a comment on any of the Facebook groups that I post to. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn if you'd like to uh, send me a message there as well. Again, I'm Pete Redden, and that's another episode of The Way I Taught It. Thank you for finding this podcast worthy of inclusion in your study of aviation. Until next time, fly safe, fly smart. That's The Way I Taught It. Episode references. 
Advisory Circular 00-54, Pilot Windshear Guide. AIM Chapter 7, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge Chapter 12, and Personal Experience.